I'm your host, Exelanzik, and tonight we're going to be looking at a group of people from Boston Children's Hospital talking about their healthy child sex lobotomy experiments. Uh, if you support what I'm doing, which is attempting to document as extensively as I can all angles of the gender identity ideology and Church of Trans uh, zeitgeist that we are living through uh, as on, on as granular a level as possible, uh, applying ethnographic skills that I have. Um, please consider donating uh, to my Odyssey or uh, PayPal or subscribing to my Substack uh, to support me monthly uh, and uh, receive uh, my newsletter, etc. Um, so we will be looking at these these five people, including the two uh, inseparable uh, galaxy trans uh, representatives. Uh, and uh, one feature that I like about this video is that I will be having a journey counter. So every every, every time uh, one of them mentions the journey, I will I, I, I will play a sound. And we'll keep a running tab and, and we'll see how many how many times. We revisit the concept of a journey. He is essentially someone's internal sense of who they are. So that means that the only person who really knows what their gender identity is, is that individual themselves. And so Therefore, um, your gender identity is a, a mystical being who exists on a plane of, of spirituality that is immaterial, that has no material essence to it, that is not measurable, that is not quantifiable, that is not something I can verify. You have to commune with your own personal deity and then report back on what the deity wants from you and further, what the deity wants from me. I'm not interested in worshiping your personal gender deity. You can take your sex goblin and, and, and take it back to gender church. I'm just not interested. So that's something that's important to know because we really need to ask others what their gender identity is to have. No, no, we don't. We don't. I don't need to do that. I'm not interested. A good sense. And with any terms, we also should ask them what terms they like to apply to themselves and what that means for them. So I'll often ask kids, oh, you identify as X, Y, Z, maybe non-binary. What does that mean for you? Grooming. This is, this is about creating an opportunity for adults to have inappropriate sexual conversations with children about how the children feel about their developing bodies. Um, in terms of, does everyone have a gender identity? Well, pretty much, I mean... What do you mean, pretty much? What do you mean, pretty much? Do some people not have a gender identity or not? And, and in your theory of how this all works medically, what happens if somebody doesn't have a gender identity? Do they lose the capacity to, to interact socially? Because that's what happens when people lose their language. They lose the ability to talk. So if somebody loses their gender, and gender has to do with the social roles that we have when we interact with other people, does that mean if I don't have a gender, I don't know how to interact with you? Because that would fall squarely under social pragmatic language, which is something I treat. Am I supposed to medically treat agender people so that they can develop a gender and function? How does this all work? Have you thought it through? I mean, certainly most people, as far as we know, identify as what's called cisgender, so identify as the gender that is assigned to them at, at birth. So this, this woman uh, is non-denominational Church of Trans, uh, so she is trying to merge Our Lady the Perpetual Hormone Therapy and uh, Hormone Replacement Therapy, but sorry, with uh, Church of the Non-Binaries, uh, and that's why she's being very wishy-washy about whether everyone has a gender. It's a major uh, doctrinal split in, the, in, the, in uh, Our Lady the Perpetual Hormone Replacement Therapy. Uh, everybody definitely has a gender.
um, and that gender has something to do with female or male. So there are two genders, man and woman, and you're, you're one of those, and it has something to do with your sex. And so if you are a man and want to be a woman, you need to have female sex hormones to become a woman. Uh, whereas Church of the Non-Binaries has all these other magical, mystical gender deities who are unconnected to female and male, uh, and, and uh, therefore we, we, we can't be connecting them in some way. That's, that's, that's heretical. And therefore, she's going to uh, use their language and try to talk about my assigned gender at birth. Well, what gender was I assigned at birth? I was, I was, I was certainly, a sex was reported. Is sex gender or isn't it? Um, as either male or female. But we know that there's a variety of different gender identities and that a lot... We do? How did we, how did we determine that? You just told me I can't verify these gender identities exist except by asking someone. Of people identify in different ways, sometimes at different points in their life. So, Church of the Non-Binaries, the gender identities can move around. Our Lady of Perpetual Hormone Replacement Therapy, gender identity is, is fixed forever by early childhood. Major irreconcilable doctrinal split, but she is a non-denominational pastor, so she will try to square the circle. And so there's um, identities that kind of fall under our big umbrella of transgender. And essentially that's an umbrella term used to describe people who identify differently than they. So uh, Church of Trans worships umbrellas in the same way that uh, Christians worship a cross slash the letter T, you could say. Uh, they, they are worshiping it as a symbol of great power and mystery. They don't understand how it does what it does. And so in Christianity, the, the cross is, is a magical symbol of, of salvation, of being free from sin, of being able to rejoin with God, this, that. It's a symbol. So, so people wear the symbol around. I'm really surprised that the Church of Trends doesn't wear little umbrella necklaces around uh, because they, they worship it as a symbol of great power, because they don't understand how it allows them to organize these concepts, and yet it does. Wow. All I have to do is think umbrella term, and suddenly it makes sense. It doesn't actually make sense because only nested hierarchies make sense. Literally only nested hierarchies make sense. Anything else is nonsense. Umbrellas are not nested. We're assigned at birth. Um, as with any of these terms, it, it can be controversial whether or not that person wants to apply that to themselves, a very personal decision. Why is it a personal decision? Usually use the terms that someone would refer to themselves as. So that may, you know, it might need a definition of a word, but, but we always use the terms that they prefer to use for themselves. And we know that when you are under that transgender umbrella or that gender diverse umbrella, you can identify as binary. So as either fully male or fully female or as non-binary or agender, which is kind of neither male or female, maybe outside of the gender binary altogether. So you can see that she has more leanings towards Our Lady, the Perpetual Hormone Replacement Therapy, and really doesn't want to explore the implications of the concept of agender. And so she is taking this, this empty set, being without something, and, and localizing it. It's, it is somewhere. It is outside of male and female, but it's somewhere. It's, it's, it's got content somehow, even though it's, it's defined as a lack of content. How does that make sense? Uh, so, so, so it's a non-denominational church. Everybody's identities are welcome as long as you put your money in the hat when it goes around. And then within that, we also have things like gender fluid, meaning that you can feel differently depending on the day. And so there's a... Yeah, you got to be careful with the gender fluids, though, because they don't come out with regular soap and water and they tend to stain. You have to use club soda to get them out. Club soda was the right answer.
a huge variety and um, wonderful experiences that we see in our population. And it's so important to ask that person what their experience is and that that person's experience is valid and they're the only one that can really put a voice to that. So that's that makes it a personal walk with Christ. That's not a secular project to be to be compelling me to be interested in. Something we always like to emphasize when we're working with our gender diverse folks. Yeah, thank you. Can you also say a little bit about how young or how old people are when they start to question their gender identity and if that's different for different people? As with many things. Uh, so questioning your gender identity is their euphemism for praying to your personal icon. It is different for different people. I mean, everyone has a unique journey. Here in the GEMS program, we see kids all the way down to age three. I mean, some kids, parents will tell me they just kind of like they were born and they knew who they were. Just completely taking it for granted that the children are not coached, even when the children are showing obvious signs of being coached. And it's very common for us to see young children who know very early. Um, Why might that be? However, it's actually more common for us to see kids who know at or around the time of puberty. Yeah, do you have any theory for why some kids don't know until later? Is, is there a medical explanation there? So essentially, a lot of kids will tell me, I felt different. I knew something might have been different about me, but I didn't quite understand or have words to, to put to that until I started going through puberty and, and started feeling, um, you know, maybe distressed about that process for my and started getting grooming from peers and adults about what the distress means, even though the adults knew damn well teenage angst has always been a thing. Um, some people, however, don't know at puberty and might know a little bit later. So essentially, it's an individual journey. It's a big tent, non-denominational megachurch. All are welcome. Bring your 20. And it's very common for people to know throughout the developmental um, cycle and even into adulthood. You know. Why is that? Is, is there some medical reason that it happens at different times in development for different people? You know, certainly some people know later in life or are able to affirm that later in life. Maybe they weren't ready to earlier. So and it's never too late to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. It's very common at, at all stages of the lifespan, but certainly in childhood and adolescence, we see a lot of gender identity. Um, because that's who you're targeting, because that's the most profitable age group. Well, can you talk a little bit about the different types of gender-affirming medical interventions and the ages that people are able to access the different types of interventions? Sure. So, you know, I always say the most important gender-affirming intervention is support of a family, support of community, which is really no medical intervention at all. But in terms of medications that we can use, we can use um, basically hormones that actually that halt the um, progression of puberty. Many people know them as hormone blockers. We know them as GnRH agonists. And so the H in GnRH stands for hormone. So as this doctor correctly states, these are hormones. They're not hormone blockers, although they do block other hormones. They are hormones in and of themselves. Different, different words, same medicine. Um, and that we usually start when a child is in into puberty. So that can be very, very var variable, as we know that kids do go into puberty at different ages. So anywhere from really as young as even nine years old, but really up to 13, 14 sometimes. Um, so they are putting children on these drugs in second and third grade these days. 
Um, so those are a really powerful tool in our toolbox. Um, and we can also use estrogen and testosterone. And those are the ones that everybody thinks about. Those are gender affirming hormones. Orwellian language aside, uh, testosterone especially is known to be a carcinogen and a teratogen. That would produce the effects of more kind of a feminine traits or masculine traits. Producing these cosmetic effects are not a medical intervention when there is no medical problem. It's a medical intervention to give estrogen to a female who is estrogen deficient. It is not a medical treatment to give estrogen to a male to feminize him just so he looks more feminine. That, that's not a medical goal. That's a cosmetic goal. And those can be started also at variable ages. The lower limit that we usually abide by, well, the recommendations for, for most people is still 16 by international and national guidelines with consideration down to age 14. So we... My, my research has uh, uncovered some, some strong suggestions that, that these cross-sex hormones are being given at, at uh, even earlier ages at times. Uh, but even giving them to a 14-year-old, you know, their their gonads are maturing at this point. And when you give a person cross-sex hormones at cross-sex hormone doses, you are you are going to affect the development and possibly prevent the development of the gonads, resulting in infertility and lack of function in adulthood. And the logic is that that's fine because they plan to cut them out anyway. We do typically follow the guidelines, um, 14, 15, 16 are really common ages for those to start. Um, and I should also say that the blockers or the GnRH agonists are reversible in some of the effects. What an absurd thing to say. They, you cannot reverse your car out of the lake and expect to be normal. You, you, that's not how it works. You can't reverse back out of the tree after you run into it. So the hormones are reversible, but many are not, so they are permanent. So even though she has acknowledged that these are hormones and not hormone blockers, she's still trying to disingenuously draw a distinction and suggest that some hormones are reversible but others aren't. The fact is you cannot reverse a lack of light when a plant is growing. You cannot reverse the bending of the sapling if the plant has matured. Um, Dr. Grimstad, can you talk a little bit about the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity and also throw in a little bit about menstrual suppression because I think it's going to follow well on the heels of Dr. Carswell's after. Sure. So let's start with menstrual suppression because I, I agree. I think it flows well. Does it flow so well that it got all over the duck behind you? Why do you have malicious advice, Mallard, is your background? I don't understand. So some people who have uteruses and ovaries um, will menstruate after the start of puberty. And oftentimes for folks who identify as trans or gender diverse who have uteruses, that can be a significant source of dysphoria or distress. Um, and menstrual suppression agents are actually things we use in gynecology for many different reasons. Painful periods, heavy periods, but we can also use them for folks who have dis difficulty or discomfort with their periods in relation to gender. And this is why I call myself a detransitioner and not a desister, because I received medical interventions that were aimed at reducing my dysphoria by suppressing my menstrual cycle. Thank goodness it wasn't testosterone. Thank goodness. But if it counts for the people heading into the church, it counts when they leave. So I'm tired of being told that I'm a desister. I'm not. Most of those medications are very safe, have low side effect profiles, and they're very easy to start. And unlike gender-affirming hormones, they don't have 
permanent long-term effects that are safe for future fertility and future reproduction. So that's an acknowledgement that testosterone is not safe for future fertility and is not safe for future reproduction. And we're giving these to teenagers, minors, children. Shifting gears for a second, talking a little bit about sexual orientation. So if we remember gender identity is kind of our own internal sense of self. Um, sexual orientation has to do with how we relate or are attracted to other folks. It is, again, a self-identified aspect. So only an individual can tell us what their sexual orientation is. Especially for adolescents and teens, they may not yet have the words for what their orientation is. Which something like gay or straight or queer. But they might use terms. Yeah, what exactly does queer mean as an orientation? Such as, I really like girls, or I like people of all genders, or I'm just not sure, that's okay. Some people will separate different things like emotional attraction and physical attraction, which is all very common, healthy, and normal in the human experience. It's also really common for people to change their sexual orientation as they get older. Excuse me? I'm sorry, what? They start to interact with more humans. In fact, 20 to 25... What? ...percent of people will change their sexual orientation from adolescence to early adulthood and from early to late adulthood. This is conversion therapy. The sexual orientation isn't changing just because you come to a better understanding of it. I'm not going to talk much more about sexual orientation today, but I do want to point out that people of any gender identity can have any sexual orientation and vice versa. Dr. Gnor, we know that not all gender diverse people want surgery, and those who want surgery don't always want the same types of surgery, but can you just tell us a little bit about the most common types of gender affirming surgery? Notice it's about what the patient wants and not what medically is indicated. And that is because they are aware that this is not a medical treatment. This is about giving patients an illusion of control to treat a psychological problem where they feel out of control. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, before we talk about the type of surgery, it's important to understand that, you know, although we are under the umbrella of Boston Children's Hospital, we, uh, the majority of the surgeries are not performed on, uh, you know, definitely not pediatric hospital, but not even teenagers. You know, there's very limited uh, uh, availability of surgeries for teenagers. And that is mostly for the transmasculine individuals who identify. Why is the man the only one without pronouns? For years, is the male interested in having top surgery or masculinizing chest reconstruction. The majority of the of the other surgeries, genital surgeries, uh, including orchiectomy and vaginoplasty, I'm going to talk about that in a second, and definitely phalloplasty are not offered until the patient achieves age of majority, and they can sign consent from themselves. Oh, I'm sorry. Is there a question about consent? Why would using drugs to change them cosmetically have less implications for their ability to consent than giving them surgery? Do you think a knife is that different from a chemical that has the same cosmetic changes as the result? Why, why, why would it be different using a drug versus a scalpel? in terms of their capacity to consent, which is apparently age-related. But let's go a step, a step back to answer your question, Lee. So when we talk about the transmasculine group, or those are, uh, that were born as female and, um, and identifying as uh, masculine or non-binary, by far the most common uh, surgery is top surgery or masculinizing chest surgery. 
The reason for that is because uh, many people who identify as a male don't like having a, such a feminine uh, structure on the body and they would like to get rid of it. So top surgery, which is somewhat similar to mastectomy, bilateral mastectomy. Somewhat similar? Is it not? Is it not exactly that? With um, repositioning your nipple, the nipples and uh, uh, creating more masculine appearance to the chest is very common. If we talk about genital surgery for transmasculine individuals, there's uh, two options. One is called metodioplasty, and the other one is called phalloplasty. In both of these, we try to reconstruct a male anatomy. In the first option... What is this reconstruct? The metodioplasty, we did not bring over new tissue from other places. Uh, and, uh, and actually what we... If you are scooping out the vagina to use to construct a pseudo-urethra, or a urethral extension rather, you are in fact moving tissue from one place to another. Uh, 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 successful with achieving is uh, the ability to urinate in standing position. What a bizarre medical goal. And having somewhat small penis. In the phalloplasty option, we also bring tissue from other location. Typically, patients, uh, sorry, uh, surgeons use the word flap for that. It can be local or a uh, free flap from other locations. And then we are able to create a, a neophallus that is somewhat uh, very, uh, looks very similar to a cisgender male. And has the functionality of a squirt gun. That is for the transmasculine group or those who uh, were born as females and transitioning into males. Born as what now? For the transfeminine group, those who were born as males, we have uh, a few options. Again, top surgery is mostly having breast augmentation with uh, fat grafting or silicone implants or saline implants. There are multiple different techniques for that. Uh, but uh, for bottom surgery, it's called penile inversion vaginoplasty uh, that is uh, actually creating a neovagina with the exter external genitalia, the female genitalia of... So I, go rec to, uh, I recommend that you go watch uh, my series Vaginoplasty Volumes and Phalloplasty Files if you want to get a sense of the nightmare that they sign these patients up for when they put them through such uh, mutilation and barbarism as these procedures. A woman. Uh, along with this procedure, we also perform, along with our urology team, orchiectomy, which is removal of the testis. So it is important to remember that this procedure is a sterilization mm -hmm. procedure. But I want to repeat this is a surgery that is only done on adults. Jazz Jennings was not an adult when he received penile inversion, vaginoplasty, and orchiectomy because he received this, according to published reports, in June of 2018, and he was born in October of 2000, so he was not 18 yet when he received these interventions. Who can sign consent for themselves. There are a few more surgeries that can be Kim Petras also was famously not 18 when the surgery was done. Offered, uh, Dr. Grimstad is performing a lot of hysterectomies for transmasculine uh, individuals who are interested of uh, removing the uterus and ovaries. There can be a facial uh, harmonization, either masculinization or feminization surgeries that come definitely uh, later uh, in life after uh, patients or individuals achieve a full ma um, maturity of the face. Uh, but those are a bit more advanced and they're not that common in our institution. So 
every uh, converted trans teenager is worth an incredible amount of money to these industries. Thank you. I think the next question that I want to get to isn't directly um, from one of the questions, but it sort of reflects a question that we've gotten from a lot of different people. And it has to do with how you support um, gender diverse youth who are not yet in puberty, in, in their schools, in their camps, and in their homes. Carrie, can you talk a little bit about resources for social transition and what social transition and support could look like for kids in different regions? So, so it looks like grooming is what it looks like. Social transition is actually a huge intervention in and of itself because it allows someone to truly affirm who they are and to be, be affirmed in their identity. And so it's definitely... It is reinforcing to the child that they are, in fact, different in some way. It's othering the child. It's propagandizing the child. It is, it is validating what is likely a, a fantasy... Uh, possibly rising to the level of delusion, depending on the child and the comorbidities. ...an important part of a lot of people's journey, and it can look different depending on the developmental stage and kind of the needs of that individual. In general, what we recommend at any age is um, as much as possible, um, you know, parental support, because the, the research we have um, is so illuminating in the importance of um, family and of family. And yet, there are uh, school guidances out there that suggest not involving the parents on the theory that families in general are likely to reject a gender-diverse fruit salad child. How are we supposed to involve the parents if we're also going to be vilifying the parents as a justification for uh, continuing inappropriate relationships between school staff and minors that the parents don't know about. We can't do both at once. You need to pick a lane here. Family support around um, protection for suicide risk, for depression, for anxiety, for substance use, and all of that. So we're very um, concerned about making sure families feel like that they can, they can come alongside. And that does necessarily mean that it has to be a medical intervention that can just mean trying to understand trying to meet your child where they're at you is this not a medical intervention using um their affirmed name and their um their affirming pronouns you have no right to tell parents that they need to abandon their cultural practices and play along with this this is forcible assimilation this is cultural genocide no right to come into a culture and say, you need to go along with your child's delusion. You need to abandon the name that you gave them and let them pick a new name. You have no right to do that. You just don't have a right to do that. Um, and so that's really important at any stage. But when you start talking about social transition outside of the, uh, the home, or the, certainly school is a huge area um, where kids choose to transition. Children are children. A lot of times um, I recommend meeting with the school to preemptively to kind of make sure that there's supports in place specifically around things like um, making sure that the name is, the affirmed name is used correctly when there's a substitute, for instance, making sure that pronouns are used. What are we going to do? It is illegal to have these expectations when it is not a, a core job function and participating in the boutique religious practices of every student is 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 not a core job function sure there is there is certainly reasonable accommodations that can be made uh 
it is not reasonable to expect uh, an average teacher to be able to speak this new language as a condition of doing their job when there's no evidence that, that, that these practices uh, do anything. There, there, there's no evidence that they're beneficial in some way or that the lack of them is harmful in some way. About bathrooms, we need to provide a safe, affirming place for someone um, to use the restroom. How are we going to manage that? And what... They sound, they talk about these kids like they are fussy cats who don't like their litter box. Is the level of kind of outness that someone wants to achieve at school? Are they someone who would rather just start the school year as they're from gender and then really not talk about the fact that um, they transition? Or is this a child who wants to be more open and wants to discuss that? So I think... What about the rights of the other students to not be in a sexually hostile environment at school? What about their rights? Um, Dr. Grimstad, can you talk a little bit about the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity and also throw in a little bit about menstrual suppression because I think it's going to follow well on the heels of Dr. Carswell's answer? Sure. So let's start with menstrual suppression because I, I agree. I think it flows well. Talking with this school, we do have resources such as safe schools to work with schools if you ever feel like a school is not kind of Gleason's another great um, organization that works with schools but if the school feels like they don't have the resources or they can't kind of uh, support you in, in your child's social transition journey um, that is that is certainly there's some resources for that and then yeah I don't feel safe with my daughter in a school where she's having to change in front of male classmates who don't even have to share the fact that they're male but she can tell there's other areas of social transition like sports and, you know, um, you know, maybe more less immediate family, you know, more, you know, aunts, uncles, grandparents, things like that. And we recommend taking it at the child's pace and really, you know, engaging them in a discussion about what feels most comfortable. But Grooming and role reversal. You don't have a right to come in and disrupt the cultural transmission from parent to child like this. But we find overall that social transition really helps to alleviate distress. And You have no evidence that this particular way of uh, creating, giving the child control theater is uh, somehow special compared to other ways that you could, you could create the illusion of control for the child and, and help them feel a little bit more uh, like they have uh, control in their, in their environment. There's, there's, there's no reason to think that your particular religious practices here are what did the trick. And every reason to think that uh, letting letting the child be in charge is what boosted their mood. That's that's not a reason to let the child uh, be in charge. Is generally a good kind of um, step in in terms of transitioning and, and into your affirmed gender, and really helps um, children feel kind of more supported. So we we do recommend it, and and certainly if there's anything that comes up, reaching out to you know a program like Gem. And how do they measure whether the child feels supported? Oh, they ask the child. They don't understand that children are children and that they're grooming the children. They don't, they don't get that. They don't get that. They, they would have done, uh, this, this is the same crowd, likely, I believe in some cases, actually literally the same person um, in, in, the, in the case of Dr. Aaron Schaff, Dr. Mellenballer, behind Satanic Panic of the 80s. They don't get children. That's not going to change or um, the therapists or advocacy networks like PFLAG or other um, things in your community are highly recommended as you kind of navigate the eccentricities of your child's transition. And I should mention that at the end of this 
seminar actually probably tomorrow, everyone will get a resource sheet that contains the resources that Dr. McGregor is talking about. It also makes me indescribably angry that both of them have galaxy trans flags as their background. Well as parents of these support resources. Um, Dr. Grimstad, one of the questions that we get a lot asked a lot in various forums is about gender affirmation and fertility. And I know that you have a lot of information about that. Could you um, talk to us a little bit about the options for um, patients? Yeah. So it depends a bit of what someone's gender embodiment goals are and what gender embodiment goals. They want to physically manifest these mental apparitions, these gender ideities, these gods, these personal icons, these personal fetishes that are running around on a plane of existence that nobody can measure and we can only access via prayer, via communing with them. But they believe that if we then go to great lengths to physically embody these mental uh, phantoms, these sex goblins, these gender gremlins, that therefore we, you know, that we will be blessed uh, by them with optimal mental health, that, that it will improve our lives in some way. We will be blessed if we worship them and get other people to worship them with us. And if we manifest them, if we make our body a temple of their Holy Spirit. I'm not interested. Please stop coming to my door on Saturday mornings. What therapies or surgeries they desire. In general, if someone goes on puberty blocking medication um, around the earliest time of their pubertal development, it can be more difficult to retrieve things like eggs or sperm later on if they progress immediately into hormones. That's more difficult is the understatement of the year, but thanks malicious advice, Mallard, ma'am. The only time when, for majority of people, we might be thinking about how hormone therapy impacts fertility long term, and even then, we're learning more and more about how we can access and utilize those eggs and sperm, even with early onset utilization of hormone therapy. So they're sabotaging your fertility, but don't fret; they're ready to experiment until they figure out how to fix what they caused. That being said, beyond that, let's say someone has ovaries and they want to go on to testosterone. They can choose to freeze their eggs if they desire to, but most people don't desire to at that point in time, and that's okay. We have good data. How, how are we going to freeze eggs that haven't matured? And I don't think that they want to go through the female puberty that would be required to get the eggs to go from mitosis 1, where they, they start uh, in, in utero, to mitosis 2, which would produce the mature egg. I don't think they want to do that. So, so are you suggesting that we we force them to go through some sort of, you know, natural puberty, for instance, and then freeze them and then transition them? Because that that doesn't work if your goal is also to prevent the puberty. So, um, why is it so smoky in here? And where 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 exactly is this smoke being directed? It's a bit rude. Where you're directing it right now? Data to show that people seem to be able to come off testosterone later on in life and be able to utilize their eggs either in a pregnancy for themselves or in someone else. Choosing to utilize their eggs before testosterone is not an option. It allows us to disentangle the decisions about fertility from the decisions about hormone therapy. In other words, it's propaganda to get you to ignore the very real likelihood that you are uh, sterilizing your child. That being said, with regards to fertility, I always remind my patients, the biggest thing we're fighting against is mother time. So someone who's been on...
and testosterone and comes off it at the age of 45 is still trying to deal with 45-year-old ovaries. For many people who know what it means to try and go through fertility treatments at the age of 45 knows that's the hardest part about it is age. What a joke. What a joke. The idea that a 45-year-old who's having some fertility problems is somehow equivalent to a 45-year-old who's having fertility problems because they were on uh, testosterone for 30 years. These are not equivalent situations. They're, they're downplaying it because they know. They know. They know. For people who have had, um, who have testes, who want to preserve sperm, sperm preservation is a lot easier and is typically accessible through things like sperm banks. We do generally recommend that if that's something someone's considering, that they do in advance of estrogen therapy because estrogen therapy does seem to diminish sperm count and quality a little bit. Look how the minimization is so disingenuous and, and, and just, just I, I swear to God, the, the malicious advice mallard is there for a reason. She knows what she is. She knows what she's doing. She knows she's a predator. She knows she likes sterilizing kids and uh, convincing their parents that that's not what's happening. Why does she like this? I don't know. I don't, I don't know why she's like this. It's, it's, uh, my, my, my belief is that this sort of dementedness is less common in females, but it is present, and I'm going to call it out when I see it. Definitely more so than testosterone does in the early data. That being said, there have been case reports of a couple of people who have successfully estrogen and been able to squeeze their sperm. Yeah, Blair White's not one of them, though. Again, we're learning so much about how... We we're learning so much. Look how much I'm learning. I'm saying yes by shaking my head no. <laughs> we can optimize fertility, specifically genetically related fertility for these patients. Another thing to remember is that people who are choosing to undergo a gender affirming hysterectomy or undergoing bottom surgery... Why does having your uterus taken out affirm your gender? Can I see your uterus? Does, do, do, do women without uteruses, are they closer to men in some way? Alongside a gender affirming hysterectomy, do not have to take out their ovaries at the same time. Ovaries are separate from the uterus, and they can be safely maintained at the time of a gender affirming hysterectomy, which again means that people can separate the decisions that they're having about whether or not to have bottom surgery or hysterectomy from whether or not they want to use their ovaries for the purposes of genetically related offspring in the, the idea that the changes of testosterone to the tissue that then requires the hysterectomy to alleviate the pain, that those changes are not affecting the ovaries, even as they're suppressing the ovulation. Absurd. Absurd. It is about convincing people that they can afford this car, that this is the right car for them. The other thing to just remember is that families are built in many different ways. Some <laughs> just give up. Just, 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 just have, you, have you considered adoption? Some families have genetically related offspring, some don't. And all of those families are equally beautiful and valid.
Dr. Carswell, we're getting a lot of questions about the safety of gender-affirming hormones. Can you talk to people a little bit about what we know and what we don't know about short and long-term safety? And we've also gotten a lot of questions about insurance coverage. And what I'm going to say about that is it varies a lot from state to state and insurance company to insurance company. So unfortunately, that's not something we can give you a general answer about because it's people here from all over the country, and we really only know about Massachusetts. So um, <clears throat> the safety issue is one that kind of comes up, you know, that, that we talk about a lot. And the answer is, um, you know, these are hormones that we're dealing with that our own bodies make. And um, we don't think of them as having side effects as so much as expected effects. So this is something I talk about a lot. We know what the effects of testosterone are and we know what the effects. Yeah, cancer and birth defects and all sorts of other problems resulting in men living much shorter lives of estrogen are. Yeah, blood clots and all sorts of other problems. We know these are very, very powerful drugs, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't affect how we look so much. So from like a side effect profile, it's not going to have, you know, you're never going to see an ad on TV like you do with, you know, an antibiotic or, a, you know, a urinary medicine that's like, these are the side effects and it lists like 800 different effects. That's not necessarily the case with these. Why does them being familiar mean they don't have many side effects? And what do you mean I won't see ads on TV for them? I've definitely seen ads on TV for them. These are hormones naturally occurring, occur in everybody's body. Naturalistic fallacy. It's the idea that if something is natural, it's therefore safe. That's uh, obviously not true. These are very, very dangerous drugs. And, and people die of them all the time. Both um, cis males, cis females, people with ovaries, people with testicles make both estrogen and testosterone. So we have, we have another Our Lady, the Perpetual Hormone Replacement Therapy here, who believes that uh, 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 cis has something to do with uh, whether you are uh, modified or unmodified in terms of your biology. And it's, it's not necessarily connected to how you feel, although the presumption is you like being femi, therefore you don't want to cut your ovaries out. How they get from point A to point B, I don't know. It made sense once. It doesn't make sense now. Um, in different flavors, pretty much. So we know that they are safe for all of us. So um, the idea that estrogen is safe for all of us is absurd. Um, we can extrapolate some of that. Um, in terms of long-term data, um, you know, we we don't have a lot of long-term data for this particular population, for a trans population or a gender diverse population. Okay, uh, Dr. Phrenologist, what evidence do you have that they're even that different? Than the normal population, other than that you have roided out females and estrogenized a bunch of males. That's, that's the only difference, is that you are using these drugs inappropriately in them. They're not actually different. You're just experimenting on healthy people. Shame on you. In adolescence, the, the data that we do have seems to suggest that there really are no, uh, as we see, no long-term side effects. Yeah, no long-term side effects. Not, none at all. No long-term side effects. Are you insane? Why do men die seven years earlier, ma'am? Why? Is it a coincidence? I will be filming this one from uh, the conference in New York City that uh, Kelly Jaheen was at, uh, or more specifically, my hotel room. And uh, I, I figured it would be appropriate to stay at a hotel uh, that had uh, really shared a namesake with uh, some piece of feminist history, which would be the Jane Network. Uh, the Jane Network was uh, a network that was aimed at getting uh, women access to abortions. And so if you needed an abortion, you would call a phone number and you would ask for Jane. And this was before abortion was legal, so um, this, was, this was no pre-internet.
um, back way, way, way back, you know, half a century ago at this point, um, uh, uh, is when it was legalized. So it was, it was even prior to that. I did not plan for the fact that my room number was 420. And I'm probably going to edit that up. Um, you know, we we don't have a lot of long-term data for this particular population, for a trans population or a gender diverse population in adolescents. The, the data that we do have seems to suggest that there really are no, uh, as we see, no long-term side effects. And it has been looked at. There are um, rare case reports of, um, I think, endometrial cancer, but not increased above the, the general population. So we don't have data, but it's been looked into, and we have uh, instances of cancer uh, in people that we are given very high doses of a known carcinogen to, uh, but it's it's not above the general population. What general population are you talking about? What research? You just said you don't have the data. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You were just trying to tell people that the carcinogen didn't cause the cancer. How are you any better than big tobacco? Uh, same with breast cancer is actually decreased for the population uh, for those who decide to keep breasts. Um, Do breasts disgust you? You are cutting them off of teen girls and you can't say the word. What is wrong with you? And also in the other direction for people who go on estrogen, their risk of breast cancer seems to be a little bit lower. Why would men going on estrogen lower their risk of breast cancer? What are you saying? That doesn't make any sense. A lot of uh, breast cancers are called estrogen receptor positive breast cancers, which you would expect because estrogen makes breasts grow. So when you get breast cancer, a lot of the times, not always, but a lot of the times, estrogen makes it grow faster. This is this is just absurd. Like she can't even keep it straight. I'm assuming she meant testosterone, uh, and 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 you would you would expect that it, giving a drug to somebody with breasts that would lower their um, estrogen production would lower the risk of estrogen making a breast cancer they develop worse. But testosterone's a carcinogen too, and you just said we don't have long term data. We don't have all that. Um, there's not many reports of that, though. Um, so we pretty much say that as far as we can tell, there's really no increased cancer risks. Why would there be no increased cancer risk when you give them a carcinogen, big tobacco? Um, and, and many have been looked at. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is we, we use these hormones all the time for kids who can't go through puberty on their own and are cis-identified. So so, so there's this false equivalence here that because we use the drugs medically for a medical reason, it's okay to just use them for fun. They just want to drug your kid. So there's a lot of conditions in which a child might not be able to have functioning ovaries, um, whether that's been, you know, through a cancer treatment or whether they were born without functional ovaries. Whether or whether they tragically now have feelings cancer that they caught from the internet. They have a genetic issue that makes their ovaries non-functional or testicles. Um, and these are the exact same hormones that we use for them. And we do have longer term data for them. And we, 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 we do. We do. We do. This is this, uh, Our Lady of the Perpetual Shrug over here in the bottom left. At all that they are dangerous in any way. Um, you know, they have permanent effects, but they, in terms of overall health, they're very predictable in their effects. How come only some of the bioidentical hormones you're giving these kids have permanent effects? 
So, um, you know, just taking on the risks of being, you know, a testicle bearing individual or an ovary bearing individual and, and what that might entail for, for them as adults. Is there some medical distinction between those two classes of people? Do we, do we have words for those two classes of people? Um, I hope I answered that enough. <laughs> you did. Okay. Um, Dr. Benorn, can you talk a little bit about vaginoplasty for patients who were on blockers prior to puberty and have underdeveloped um, genitalia? Oh, 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 did 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 we did we cause their genitalia to be profoundly deformed through the use of uh, interventions? I.e., did we mutilate them? Yes, of course. So this is a great question. So the fo- and this would be Dr. Gnor, uh, who uh, may have been on Ryan James' uh, treatment team. Uh, I was it was given a list of names. There was a Dr. Gnor at Boston Children's Hospital on it. Uh, this may be a different Dr. Gnor at Boston Children's Hospital. Formal name or the gold standard for this uh, uh, procedure is penile inversion vaginoplasty. Um, what we do in this procedure, we actually take the male genitalia and we try to reconstruct a... This guy sounds like Dr. Nick from The Simpsons, and he uh, apparently is Dr. Nick from The Symptoms. Like with like um, tissues uh, and, to ex- and to create actually the external genitalia. External genitalia, along with uh, the neo vagina, which is the uh, vaginal space itself. Um, in this procedure, we also, as I mentioned earlier, perform orchiectomy. But uh, for those who were on. And this that he just described is what was done to Jazz Jennings uh, when he was under 18. Because uh, news reports say that it was done in June of 2018, and Jazz was born in October of 2000, according to available information. Uh, his birth year might have changed since they first published that. I don't know. But that, that that's what comes up on Google. And that was the year he went to college. And typically kids go to college when they're 18. And that's why it was done that year is because they wanted to do it before he went off to college in the fall. Period blockers, sometimes the, the testes are, are very small and the penis also is very small, meaning you have much uh, less tissue available for the reconstruction. Um, this is- uh, which, which, which is what happened to Jess. This is why uh, sometimes we need to uh, use skin from other locations. But fortunately, as Dr. Crane said, the patient is a whole warehouse of skin. Actually, it's not that common. Okay, We most of the time can do some modifications to the tissue that we use, including... What do you mean it's not that common? Wouldn't it be, like, all of them? Everyone who got blocked before a certain age? What do you mean it's not that common? Does it sometimes develop in spite of the blockers? How does that happen? Do you have a theory there, Dr. Ganor? Uh, extending uh, the, the, the skin graft that we're using from the scoral area, but also we can take some tissue from other locations, including the thigh or lower abdomen, and hide the scar in very reasonable locations. So the majority of the, of the patients... Who... Uh, we all saw those pictures of Jazz in the swimsuit showing that his scars were not exactly hidden in a real, reasonable location, but were quite visible go through this procedure would not need these uh, modifications to their operation but if we need more tissue we have some places to take uh, to take and as you recall um the surgery that was done on just jennings which was done at cedar sinai is my understanding at least one of them uh was was uh done uh and during the surgery dr jess ting and dr marcy bowers argued about whether something was a scar or a disfiguring, uh, a disfiguring scar, or or uh, a sulcus, meaning meaning a fold. 
it is not at all clear to these doctors what it's supposed to look like because they, they're often men who are getting their idea about what's normal for women from a very specific location. Dr. McGregor and Dr. Carswell, I think either one of you or both you might want to answer this question, which I love. We got it a couple of times. How has COVID changed the number of people you're seeing coming in and trying to come in for care? Um, I know this is something we've talked a lot about behind the scenes, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Yes, that's right. We're we're ta we're talking about surgeries that are continuing to happen during COVID. Um, I think that COVID has probably increased the amount of people that we've seen. Um, why not? This is, why, why would it slow it down in the slightest? You know, I think that COVID was uh, quite an experience for all of us. And the fact that we were kind of at home, there's a lot less uh, activities in our daily lives. We have a lot less distracting things. You know, we're really just... Kind of left with ourselves at home and you can imagine where this might lead to a little bit more uh, self-reflection and maybe um you're also with family a lot more than maybe usual so it leads to disclosures as well so it certainly has in other words people came out because they were bored because they were home during a pandemic and we're all just going to take it for granted has led to uh, seeing more patients um, but at the same time you know there's no indication that COVID itself has increased or that the experience of the pandemic um, has increased the gender you know, identity percentile in our population. I think that the kids we see now that have come to see us throughout uh, the time of the pandemic have been, they have very similar stories. and Because they're getting it from TikTok, ma'am. Um, similar journeys that we've seen before. I think that they just uh, kind of came to a head during a time when maybe there was a, a lot less distracting um, them and, and, and allowed them to kind of uh, fully disclose and, and come out. Jeremy, was that uh, your experience? It, it is a, a faith-based belief that uh, the increase in uh, demand for services uh, does not reflect uh, an increase in the number of people who think that they're trans but instead somehow just reflects an increase in people feeling safe. Thank goodness they felt safe enough to come out. Answer. Yeah, 100%. And um, I, you know, just looking at our numbers, you know, especially in the last several, I don't want to say maybe at least six months, you know, it's hard to exactly quantify, but, you know, our volume probably, if we were able to, to accommodate, everybody would probably be like a 5x <laughs> increase in our volume. And, but 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 no one's going to question that. Big Tobacco is just thrilled that people are buying more cigarettes. So, and we are not unique in this program. Other programs have experienced very similar things. No kidding. And Dr. McGregor, I'm going to stick with you for a second. We've gotten a bunch of different questions along the lines of how do we know that a child's gender dysphoria is... How come Dr. McGregor only needs to have, is the only one that needs a possessive? real how do we know it's not just peer pressure or mental illness or any or something like that how do we know that kids who are presenting as gender diverse are actually gender diverse and there's not something else going on yeah i mean i think that there's there's a lot of understandable questions about kind of what's real what what's not i think it's important to note that for that child it's very real <laughs> They know that they are just affirming a child's delusion. There's no no uh, criteria 
for them to say, you know what, this child's wrong. They have completely parentified the child. They worship the child. They think the child is a deity. These people have no business making medical decisions for your child. <laughs> so I think or, or offering them drugs. I think that the answer is that it's always real. Um, no, it's not. Um, the question of whether or not there's kind of other factors we should be considering, other complexities, nuance to the situation, I think that that's certainly something, um, you know, we explore a lot uh, in our program. We explore, uh, we explore it a lot. A lot. Like, I'm exploring it right now. I'm, I'm exploring it right now. In general, it's still very rare to present as gender diverse. I think that sometimes we think. So? This is like, it's just exploding and it's everybody is doing this. You just said it's exploding. It's still very small, maybe like 1%, less than 1%. It depends on kind of what studies you're looking at. But How many kids need to get hooked on cigarettes before Big Tobacco is satisfied? It's, it's a small amount of the population that experiences kind of gender diversity, at least. Well, ma'am, for that child, it's very real what you're doing to them. Doesn't matter that it's a small percentage for that child when you cut off their breasts, cut out their uterus, cut out their ovaries, tell them that they can have kids later so that they can be disappointed when they find out that they can't. How dare you? I have never been so mad at Mr. McGregor here. That, um, that we know of right now. And so I think it's, it's worth taking seriously every time. Um, there's a lot of distress that can come with feeling like you're learning things about yourself that might um, be different for you or might make it harder for you in some spaces. Um, and so I think that we always take it very seriously. The best yeah, but your definition of take it seriously is drug the child and cut pieces off of them. Taking their distress seriously means therapy. It means support. It means parenting because kids uh, stress out. Kids become distressed when they don't feel like they have a stable parent who can support them because kids are craving parenting. Best indicator, though, if of like if someone is going to experience um, kind of benefits from more long term treatment, like what we offer, um, is just consistency over time. You know, we find that if there's an exploration process, that exploration process takes takes part. Of, you know, it goes through, and then eventually people kind of land where they land. And grooming process is what she means. When they're consistent for a good amount of time, that usually gives us a good indication that. You know, this is really who this person is. And no, it tells them that their grooming is working. This is the clever Hansel effect. These these uh, adults, when when they're completely naive, are still conditioning the children uh, and are using the child uh, going in the direction that they want the child to go into uh, as a sign of when the conditioning is doing is is working and when it's not working. And so they make adjustments accordingly. But they are grooming the children. They are conditioning the children, and they are watching to see when it's working and when it's not, and making adjustments so that the child continues to identify in the way that they want the child to identify. I have videos of parents doing this with young kids. Sometimes they even use visual aids like magnet boards. It is really not that difficult to coach a child. And so that's when, when, when they're completely naive. I don't think any of these people are completely naive. These clearly all know exactly what they're doing, all, all five of these bastards. And there's not necessarily any other chapters to this story of gender um, discovery. Um, but I think that the, the real question is always so important. You know, it's very real to that person. And I think we always need to take it seriously and do the best we can to support. We can do the best we can. 
Our Lady of the Perpetual Shrug at Boston Children's. Support that child, um, even if it's, again, not medically, even if it's just supporting them, allowing them to try different names, allowing them to try different pronouns, different ways of dressing. Of the important thing is to make sure that the kid is doing the trans rights expressing themselves. These are all things that are so normal to adolescent and child development. Choosing your own pronouns is not normal to adolescent and child development. And I think that, um, you know, we need to just allow the child to kind of go through that process and, and then see where we all end. Your child choosing their own name is also not part of a normal developmental process. And at the uh, kind of the end of that journey. Let it be. Um, but hopefully that addresses that kind of the real question. It's hopefully that addresses. Her body language is so discordant with what's coming out of her mouth and with her facial expression. I, I don't like this person. <laughs> all right. That's, that's all I have for you right now. Uh, cause I got to go check out of my hotel room. Uh, uh, it was, it was, it's been great to be in New York. Uh, and maybe, maybe next time I'll actually tell people I'm coming. Who knows? Wild. Uh, welcome right. back to the institutional capture is real. Uh, I am your host, Exelanzic, and, uh, we are looking at Boston Children's Hospital. This is uh, part five, I believe, in the in the series uh, responding to this uh, hour-long uh, panel. Uh, Boston Children's Hospital was the uh, location uh, that uh, Ryan James underwent uh, the phalloplasty and vaginectomy that resulted in needing a colostomy bag. Uh, that that uh, is, is still going strong and uh, causing chronic infections. Due to the significant fistula that was created, and uh, one of these uh, doctors, Dr. Orenganor, may have been uh, specifically on uh, Ryan's treatment team. Let's let's find out what he's like. And I think that we're all aware of the high rates of suicidality and depression and mental health problems and substance use around transgender youth. And it's really important to know that having a supportive parent makes a big difference in, in kids and adolescents being safe. And as Dr. McGregor just said, being supportive does not mean that you have to let your kid um, have hormones or have to let your kid have surgery. Really? It doesn't mean that? Then why are people losing their children if they say no to this shit? Why have children been removed from their parents' care? Why have some parents gone to jail? If, if this isn't necessary, this is just, they're grooming the parents. It's about allowing to express themselves as their gender, respecting their gender identity, and respecting their pronouns. And just another question that we've gotten a lot. This is cultural genocide. What about is when children are want to present differently in different spaces, is that normal? Is that safe? And the answer is yes. Um, it, it's often hardest on the parents because they have to keep track of everything and that can sometimes feel like a lot, but there are plenty of so that that did you see that like that can feel like a lot. That's that that's a way of signaling to the parent that like if you complain about this, I'm gonna judge you. I'm gonna judge you and, and your capacities. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some shade there. Reasons why children will choose to present as their affirmed gender in some spaces and as their assigned gender in other spaces. So again, this conflation of gender and sex. Are gender and sex the same or are they different? I wasn't assigned a gender. My sex was observed. 
There was no ambiguity. There was no assignation. My sex was observed, and it was observed correctly. So, Dr. Grimstad, I have a question for you that I know that you have a lot of information about. Um, I have read that long-term use of testosterone can lead to vaginal atrophy. Um, is that correct? And if so, is that what do we? Is that something we need to worry about? So. Atrophy is when you lose size uh, uh, and, and with it strength uh, and flexibility and, and otherwise uh, uh, function in a muscle, and the vagina is a muscle. So vaginal atrophy is, is when this structure that is critically you know, important for a lot of major life activities uh, withers. What, let's see what happens when, when, when such a, a significant part of the body in such a very critically important location for mobility uh, starts to wither. That's a great question. Um, and it's actually now here comes malicious advice, Mallard. Actually very interesting. You know, we um, the way that testosterone affects each individual is very different. And that Does she sound like she knows from first-hand experience what this vaginal atrophy feels like based on her voice? is no exception with regards to the genitals. So some people will experience a great degree of vulvovaginal atrophy. Um, that atrophy may be asymptomatic, which means they don't even know that it's happening. It doesn't bother. Oh, well, if you don't know what's happening, it won't horrifyingly like ruin your life later, right? That's how it works. If you don't feel yourself withering, it won't cause problems. Is that, is that, is that, is that something, is that supposed to relieve me? To know that I could be having a horrific complication of this medication, and I wouldn't even know until it was too late. It is a crime. It is a crime to mutilate the genitals of female children. And they know that that's what they're doing. Why aren't they in jail? Why? I don't understand why they're not in jail. Other than they're able to go about their day-to-day. -day. Atrophy itself doesn't have any sort of long-term negative risks beyond certain quality of life components. Uh, that's a pretty big risk, ma'am. Not, not <laughs> And we know that they don't have the data. So when they say it has no long-term risk, they're, they're talking out of nothing. There may be other people who do experience atrophy and it bothers them either with just kind of non-specific genital pain. Um, it could do you feel emotionally manipulated by how she approaches communication? Because I do, and I don't like it. Cause discharge because atrophic vaginas tend to have different discharge from vaginas that have estrogen in them. Um, other people. We're talking about minors may have pain or discomfort associated with things like sex. Um, and if that's true, then... If lack of estrogen causes atrophy, then it shouldn't matter whether there's also testosterone. The puberty blockers alone are going to do this. The fact that they don't notice the difference because they never developed in the first place, so they never lost the function, doesn't mean that they're not still mutilating the genitals of female children knowingly. Why are, not, why are they not in jail? We can offer them moisturizers, lube. Oh, you're going to offer the... Really? Well then, I, that, that makes it okay. Brickens as well as vaginal estrogen, which does not do anything to affect the testosterone that's going through the rest of their body, um, to help support them through those components. I will say... Do you see the experimentation here? Do you think that there's any reasonable, like, 
understanding of what doses are needed to prevent the complications if you are roiding out them systemically and then attempting to counteract that locally. That has, that's going to have very unpredictable effects. The majority of people um, who are on testosterone do not have significant atrophy in a way where we can actually visualize it on exam. So do these people not have a motivation to lie? We, we, we want to, we're, we're expected to take their word for it that they can't see a difference. I don't, I don't believe you, ma'am. I don't believe that you don't see the difference. I just don't believe that. There's enough of the testosterone that's converting to estrogen in their body to support those tissues in a healthy manner. Dr. Carswell. Wait, so you're, you're expecting, you're expecting them to get, get roided out to the point that they start to aromatize and, and turn into, to, to, to secular feminization? kind of situation and that's that's supposed to protect them from the vaginal atrophy. You're a quack. Well, can you talk a little bit about the difference between um, sort of cisgender kids being uncomfortable with puberty and transgender kids being uncomfortable with puberty? Can you please establish what you mean by transgender child besides child that has identified themselves as transgender or been coached or groomed into it? Because you sound like a phrenologist. You can't start from the social category and work backwards. That's a good question. I think it's really individual, honestly. I think a lot of kids... Oh. <laughs> uh, hello, dog. Um, yeah, I, I think some people really feel that there's adolescence is a really uncomfortable time, no matter if you're cisgender or not. I think it's especially uncomfortable if you are gender diverse because... Citation needed. And you're having some, you know, very incongruent things happening with your body but um i don't think i you're weird and different let us drug you and cut pieces off of you these are predators preying on normal teenage angst i met too many adolescents that are like super psyched about having puberty um so i yeah i think it definitely can exist i think it's just that much more exacerbated for those who are uh gender diverse um no it's not if it is they have some other issue there's nothing inherently distressing about being gender diverse. There, there is something inherently distressing about having a psychological illness and about being 14. Those are very inherently distressing states. And, and you have no right to take advantage of that fact and prey on the young to sell them these interventions that we all agree are very likely to significantly shorten their lifespan, among many other problems. I don't know if anybody else has any comments on that. Yeah, I just want to add to that. I think that, you know, I, I see adolescents kind of, you know, in gyms and outside of gyms. I think that the level of distress is actually quite different. I mean. Yeah, it's, it's quite different. Our Lady of the Perpetual Shrug at Boston Children's. Most of the adolescents who are kind of not gender diverse or cisgender, who I see in other settings, they might not be happy about puberty. But they kind of put up with it versus there's a real focus for a lot of our gender diverse folks on puberty. It's very distressing to them. They're very distressed by particular aspects of their development and how that doesn't affirm their gender. And there's. Are, are we just going to pretend that there's not a zeitgeist, that they're not all online talking about it, that they're not performing distress in order to get things? things they want. They want top surgery. They're going to perform distress to get what they want because they're young and have poor judgment and know that that's the way to get what they want.
and you're going to enable that because you're a predator. It's just a very different feeling. I think it becomes much more encompassing. And I always say, follow the distress. And so. Yeah, chase that dragon. There's a different flavor and intensity to the stress in our gender diverse folks most most often than just kind of being annoyed with puberty or being, you know, bothered by it. That's the Does she seem like she wants to help the child or feel the child out? It's nowhere near the intensity that we tend to see in our gender diverse folks. So it's just predatory. It's just about telling the parents, yes, your kid is especially upset. Let us cut it pieces off of him. Let us sterilize your child. Look look how upset they are. Meanwhile, the child knows that performing upset is the way to get what they want. It's the clever Hansel effect, and it is it is a cadre of predatory industries. It's it's a very different experience than um, than a cisgender person typically. Citation needed. Thank you, Doctor. There is no independent blood test or confirmation that you are dealing with a quote unquote transgender child versus a confused child. There's no differentiating factor. And so if they're going to say it's based on, on their subjective sense of their intensity, or as Aaron Kimberly called it, the drive, what do they expect to happen? This is no different than, than, than uh, it was a, a, a Dr. Bailey that, that Karen Davis has been looking at, uh, talking about how some kids seek out sexual abuse. They, they, they want to say that some kids, it's appropriate to mistreat. Some kids want it. Some kids need it. The truth is all kids need protection from such people. Grimstad, will you talk to us a little bit about sexual pleasure and what, how different um, hormone regimens and surgeries affect people's um, ability to experience sexual pleasure? We're, 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 we're talking about minors, a lot of minors uh, undergoing these interventions. Yeah. Why are they sexually experimenting on minors and collecting data on their sexual pleasure? Does this seem like a reasonable, ethical thing to be doing? Yeah. Why is Dr. Quack so excited right now? This is like the majority, the largest group of people I've ever She's moving like James Shoop. Why is she so excited? Talked about sexual pleasure with, but I'm so happy to do so. I, I've never been so angry at malicious advice, Mallard, ma'am. Um, you know, Why is she giggling? In general, I think the best thing to remember is like sexual pleasure is so individual, right? Everyone has a different answer for what they are seeking in terms of sexual pleasure. She likes having this conversation with minors, it seems. I want to give them Hormones are a big part of our um, kind of transition point into experiencing sexual pleasure. Um, and so puberty and adolescence and early adulthood are going to be a time where, where people begin to explore how they feel and how they relate to other people. Jazz Jennings, who was put on puberty blockers at 11 and then put on cross-sex hormones at, I believe, either 12 or 13, uh, was, was, uh, has, has said that he has never experienced an orgasm. He's never experienced sexual sensation, and uh, I'm skeptical that he ever will now that uh, large portions of his genitalia have been removed. Well, why is she so excited by this topic, given what she must know? She must know! She must know what this does to kids! They know! Why is she so excited? Um, and just 
as endogenous, so the hormones we produce inside our body may affect that. Hormones that we take outside our body may affect that as well. Birth control pills, gender affirming hormones, all of those can affect that. And I always like to say that the effect is going to be different for every person. So just they're experimenting on them. They're giving them drugs that they know are going to be manipulating their sexual pleasure. Uh, and and it's, it's in part a pretext to be able to have this kind of conversation, which I consider to be very, very inappropriate for the age group that are getting targeted by these puberty blockers. And yet this conversation, I mean, you would expect that it would be ethically required to be able to give informed consent. So does any of this, this feel appropriate? Does this pass the vibe test? is you may have felt um, that you're... Okay, I need a break. Infuriating. He is essentially someone's internal sense of who they are. So that means that the only... What, how different um, hormone regimens and surgeries are a big part of our um, kind of transition point into experiencing sexual pleasure. Um, and so puberty and adolescence and early adulthood are going to be a time where, where people begin to explore how they feel and how they relate to other people. Um, and just as endogenous, so the hormones we produce inside our body may affect that. Hormones that we take outside our body may affect that as well. Birth control pills, gender affirming hormones, all of those can affect that. And I always like to say that the effect is going to be different for every person. Just as you may have felt um, that your sexual pleasure improved on, let's say, a birth control pill, your friends didn't, that sort of individualization is just the same for gender-affirming hormones. We're, we're talking about minors. I think for the most part, people who are living in a body they feel comfortable with, in a gender that they feel is their true internal sense of self, um, and are able to live to their fullest degree of life, are going to have the best ability to have a happy and healthy sexual life. The idea that the interventions that were done to Jazz Jennings uh, gave him the best chance at experiencing sexual pleasure. When uh, the last he talked about it, he doesn't experience sexual pleasure because uh, that organ was prevented from developing and then it was cut to size. It's absurd. It's, it's a lie. And this is very similar uh, to the promise that if you sacrifice yourself for Allah, you will get 72 virgins in some sort of afterlife. It is a promise of some sort of infinite, uh, idealized sexual life pleasure, uh, some sort of uh, reward, some sort of heaven on earth for doing the trans rites. Regardless of the hormones that they're taking or the anatomy that Beyond that, it is all, all about individual approaches to kind of what their issues are going to be um, and how we can best help to support them, whether it's things like thinking about lubrication and vulvovaginal atrophy, or for someone who may be on hormones um, and who has a penis, who is having difficulty maintaining erections, thinking about how we can modify the hormone therapy if that's something that's in their sexual goals. We're, we're talking about children that are being put on these cross-sex hormones uh, and or puberty blockers uh, in, in grade school. How does this conversation make sense with, with such a child? Thank you. We're getting a lot of um, questions about whether Jens is accepting mutations and how long the wait list currently is. I just responded to one of those questions. 
Well, she's excited, isn't she? Um, actually, so unfortunately, do have a wait list right now. The amount of volume that um, has been coming in is pretty um, large. So I I don't know the exact number right now. We are really really working hard to try to get everybody off the wait list. Um, we're thinking about some creative ways like um, webinars and, and things like that to have people. Which um, is just put the hormones in a shotgun and line them up. Um, be able to at least get some information to find out if gems is the right fit. Um, Seriously, what, when is it not the right fit? But if you do call and you leave a message, we will get it. Please don't leave multiple messages because that slows down the process. Um, or you can send a power chart message if you are already a Boston Children's um, patient. And uh, again, we will also get that. Um, and then you can also check out our website for any, uh, you know, we go through some of our, our processes and we have a lot of resources on our website. So that's another great resource. So, um, yeah, I, I, I apologize for that. I know that we're not the only ones with a wait list and we really would love to be able to see everybody as soon as possible. And this is that supposed tragedy of, of, uh, trans kids not being able to access healthcare is, is that there's, there's waiting lists because of the truly explosive demand for these uh, services. And maybe if I could just add to that for folks for whom kind of who have periods and for whom periods is a specific dysphoria component. Is there a word for that group? I really do encourage you to talk with the pediatrician about whether or not they feel comfortable initiating some menstrual suppression. Many pediatricians do. And There's something called the female athlete triad. Uh, that the, uh, I remember being taught about and warned about in high school. Uh, so knowledge of it has existed for some time, and, and it happens when female athletes exercise to the point that they get so thin and are taking in so few calories relative to how many they're burning that they stop menstruating. And it's a problem because your bones are mineralizing in your teen years in response to hormones. And if you don't have those hormones, your bones are not mineralizing correctly. And if you were being given puberty blockers altogether, your bones are also likely going to grow longer than they would have. And it is purely theoretical that dosing you uh, intermittently with a large bolus of cross-sex hormones will make up for the fact that they are suppressing your natural sex hormones. It's, it's, it's purely theoretical. The literature admits that. They are experimenting on children. And the result is going to be hip fractures in their 20s. If not, they can be referred to either adolescent medicine here or our division of gynecology, and we are happy to serve as a resource for that. Dr. Gnor, can you talk a little bit about how BMI affects um, the ability to access surgery, both with you and with other surgeons? BMI would be body mass index, and so she is saying that uh, when children are referred, uh, how fat is too fat? Of course, so this is uh, definitely something that is somewhat uh, individual for specific surgeons, okay? Um, it also depends on the type of surgery that we're talking about, uh, but let's, you know, try and focus on uh, masculinizing chest reconstruction or top surgery, because I think this is uh, one of the most common procedures and some patients struggle with losing weight before, um, before, before actually uh, getting their uh, chest aligned with their gender identity. Right. So we are taking teenage girls and telling them, uh, you are too fat to get what you want. Eat less and, and you'll get what you want. 
these are girls who already have body issues. What, what, what do we really expect to happen? So uh, many surgeons decide that uh, um, they want uh, the patients to be under specific BMI. If you review the medical literature, you see that there's definitely higher complication rates in patients with IBMI. There's higher complication rates in patients you give cosmetic surgery to as minors than if you just let them alone, let them develop. And also, if you review other plastic surgery uh, uh, procedures, you can see that it's true to a lot of procedures. And the reason for that is because uh, those patients have more wound healing problems, they have the tendency for fluid collection, or the medical term for that is seroma, and they, uh, if there are other comorbidities that are actually uh, happening at the same time, like diabetes or uh, skin uh, problems or uh, nicotine use, actually uh, superimposed on the fact that they are overweight. So some surgeons choose to use specific PMI. Uh, um, I think, you know, it's really important to choose a, a surgeon that you uh, feel comfortable with and then discuss whether they're... Feeling comfortable did not save Ryan James. ...requirements and then discuss ways to actually meet their requirements. And it is important to remember that even when, they, when a surgeon actually trying to work with a patient to talk to them to do some way to be ready for surgery, it's uh, they're trying to think about the uh, you know their well-being and also uh, the aesthetic outcome. So uh, I know it can be sometimes their well-being and the aesthetic outcome are obviously at odds, and the uh, patients are the ones who are going to have to live with the consequences. It's uh, frustrating, but uh, most of the times when it happens, it is reasonable and also. For me and the way I do things, I don't have a specific cutoff for top surgery. Uh, for some some patients, uh, you know, I ask them to lose weight uh, before surgery because I think they can do it and it's appropriate. And there are other issues that we need to address. But for others, I think that it's going to be uh, okay for them to have surgery, even if their BMI is a little bit higher. So it really depends on other factors as well. Uh, they're they're willing to subject uh, these kids to a, a very high degree of risk. Um, in order to, to put them through the trans rights, despite the fact that they are so unhealthy, so physically and mentally ill, that uh, during a critical developmental window, they have uh, an unacceptably high BMI, which is a known health problem. Perhaps the dysphoria would be alleviated if they were on a reasonable diet and exercise program. Perhaps the dysphoria is rooted in a genetic uh, illness that hasn't been fully diagnosed that is leading to overeating. Perhaps the dysphoria is uh, related to a mental health condition that could be treated some other way that also has the symptom of overeating. But instead, we're going to cut their breasts off and hope for the best. For bottom surgeries, typically there is a requirement for a, a relatively lower BMI than for top surgery, and that is around the BMI of 30 or something like that. Gregor, we have a bunch of questions about, for lack of a better, um, just the, the intersection between gender dysphoria and behavioral problems and sort of which comes first, the chicken or the egg, but also gender dysphoria and mental health problems. Can you talk about how sort of how they interrelate with each other? So it's, it seemed like she just implied that she's aware that gender dysphoria can be secondary to a different problem. 
So I wonder if she actually wants to treat the other problem and expect the gender dysphoria to go away, or if we're going to find out that gender dysphoria is always primary. Yeah, I mean, I think that we see a, a wide individuality to that like it's it's very specific to the person but in general we find that most um of the mental health distress that we see um pops up at around puberty when we start to see the gender dysphoria get much more intense and we really see gender dysphoria as kind of fuel to the overall fire that is mental health concerns. So it's certainly um you know taking away that fuel is certainly only going to help. It will in other words, gender dysphoria is always primary, and so if we can just take that away, it will stop causing the other problems. It will not take away the whole fire, likely, but it will it will diminish things and allow somebody to have more resources to devote to, to coping with other mental health distress. Uh, reportedly, according to Janet Jennings uh, and Jazz Jennings, Jazz uh, did not have the severe mental health problems he was diagnosed with until after they attempted to take the fuel of the gender dysphoria away from the overall fire of his mental health. It was only after the puberty blocker implant that he got diagnosed with depression and uh, apparently started becoming suicidal. So it doesn't sound like it always helps. In general, um, the puberty process is so distressing that a lot of people who might have been prone to mental health concerns to begin with um, really kind of reach that threshold. And so we start to see a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of suicidality. Um, is it could, could it be because you're messing with their hormones when we know that uh, hormones have profound effects on mood? some of the common things that we see and then we see some other things that you know are, are a little less common like bipolar disorder um you know psychotic um, experiences things like that um so we see very complex people and every person uh is complex but in so they are sexually mutilating people who have psychosis it sounds like in general the gender dysphoria just adds fuel and, and makes it harder for somebody to cope with any other um distress that they might have and we they literally can't imagine these interventions harming the patients because they're not medical interventions, they're religious rituals. We find that treating that gender dysphoria does help mental health, especially mood. Um, and Didn't help Jazz's mood. Especially like some anxiety, especially that social anxiety. We do see that that gets much better. Um, so typically we're worried. Um, what, what if you tried treating the social anxiety as social anxiety if you recognize that it's social anxiety? Mostly about that adolescent time is when we see the most intensity of distress, especially before they transition. Um, usually, in they're preying on children. Childhood, we don't see as much gender dysphoria because they haven't been through a non-affirming puberty. Which is part of the reason we're such big fans of puberty blockers in appropriate cases because it is protective from a mental health um, perspective, certainly. There's no, no evidence of that. They, they, they just want to sell your kids cigarettes. And so we often will not see that distress. There is some behavioral problems we might see pop up uh, in children that are gender diverse as well, but it tends to be much more connected, I think, in adolescence. They have a narrative they're selling. It's all.
also just hard to be gender diverse. There's a lot of um, difficulties and feeling not affirmed. We hear from a lot of folks that they come out at school and they might experience some bullying around that, that it's difficult to come out to family and that that's been a bumpy journey for everybody and that can create distress as well. So there's a lot of things going on in adolescence around the Wait, so is being gender diverse the problem or is uh, not getting the attention you expect to get for being gender diverse the problem? time when gender identity is being explored that can make it seem like a very explosive time and maybe make it confusing for families to figure out, wait, did this depression cause this gender identity? It's really never the case around the time when gender identity is being explored that can make it seem like a very explosive time and maybe make it confusing for families to figure out, wait, did this depression cause this gender identity? It's really never the case that I look at somebody who's gender diverse and say that other mental health concern caused this. Do, do, QED, QED. They will never consider that maybe the child is wrong about having their genitalia removed and stunted and deformed and robbed of sensation and robbed of function. Even if the patient is psychotic, even if the patient has no idea what's real, they're always still going to see it as some primary thing because they worship these gender-diverse fruit salad kids. They see them as little deities. They want to know whether he's going to pick up the Buddha's mirror. Wait, did this depression cause this gender identity? It's really never the case that I look at somebody who's gender diverse and say that other mental health concern caused this gender diversity. I see it as much more complex and as much more intertwined. Um, but the gender diversity itself, we find as we treat that and as we allow someone to fully come into themselves, they tend to do better on the mental health side as well. Why are you treating gender diversity? Why is that something that needs treatment? And why is the treatment surgical and hormonal conversion therapy? We've gotten a number of questions about the safety of binding, and I'm just going to mention that in the resource sheet that you will receive later this week, there will be information about resources for binding safely and resources for tucking safely, which is disguising um, the penis and testicles. We're talking about children. And this children's hospital is giving advice on tucking safely, so compressing the genitals safely. And we know these people don't care if the genitals are chemically or surgically mutilated into uselessness. So why would they care about pressure necrosis? Why would they care about about uh, damage caused by compression? And for both of these things, it is possible to do them more and less safely. And so if you have a child or adolescent who is tucking or binding, it's a child, if you have a child who's tucking. It can be really helpful to use those resources in order to reduce the pain that they experience and other. In order to reduce the pain. Because some pain is apparently normal. We just want to reduce it. Dr. Carswell, I have a question that you're going to love. Talk to us a little bit about when parents have to be open that they have a trans child in sports. And I know that the big answer, <laughs> oh, I, just take it away. They really like screwing with these children. It's fun for them, the idea of messing with a child's head so much that they think that they're the opposite sex and then sending them out into the world and watching them do stuff. 
It's really fun for them. It, it's a fun fantasy that they like acting out. <sighs> um, yeah, I actually don't know the answer to that. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I think the answer is you have to assess the safety of disclosure with your, um, you, you know, with, you have to understand what the safety risks are. No concern for the safety risks for the women and girls who will have to be exposed to these males in their locker rooms. No, nobody gives a shit about their safety risks, their psychological trauma and damage, or the physical risks that they're exposed to when they are forced to disrobe and shower with uh, males as females. Um, and certainly, I think it depends where you are in the country. It depends how old your child is. Um, you know, it depends on the regulations. If they're in high school, if they're a really elite athlete, that's going to have a, you know, there's probably rules that are set forth um, by the town, the state, whatever it is. Um, whatever. So it's really individual. I think in, you know, we are just starting to look at kind of what, what this means in athletics. And the answer is we really don't know. Um, you know, we think for younger kids, there's really no difference. If you have testicles or if you have ovaries, there should, we think that there's probably really no great difference. There's no reason to think that children before the adolescent puberty are the same. No reason at all. They develop at different speeds for Christ's sakes. Athletic performance between, you know, boys, girls. Um, but that really hasn't been shown. So, um, I, you know, hopefully in elementary school, there is no issue. And usually schools will have some sort of policy. So they don't know that they won't have a negative impact on girls. They just don't care. Um, about this. So I, I think bringing it up, um, again, assessing safety, maybe talking to an administrator or, um, you know, it's tricky. I don't, I don't, no one has all the answers for this. It's what? What? I thought you guys did have all the answers. Why, why, why don't you have all the answers? Maybe you shouldn't be making policy suggestions until you finish getting all the answers, ma'am. Really town-dependent, child-dependent. How is it town-dependent? Girls are girls. Everywhere you go. I think one of the other questions that I'd like us to just have um, to get people's thoughts on that we've gotten a bunch of different variations of is kids whose gender expression is different than their identity. So it could be a child who is assigned female at birth and presents as female but identifies as a boy. Or it could be um, a child uh, in... So in other words, uh, it could be a child who has been coached in, and or otherwise uh, affirmed, i.e. conditioned, into doing something very confusing for attention. This is not, not a child that's in a psychologically healthy environment when they're, they're acting like that, and or it's not a child who is themselves healthy. And or it is a child who is attempting to get attention, which is generally a sign of point A or point B. A different circumstance. Um, Dr. McGregor, I think you're probably the best person to talk about sort of the difference between expression and identity. Yes, please weigh in, Pastor. Yeah, I think this can get really confusing because um, gender expression is really the outward show of our gender, right? How we dress, how we present ourselves physically, how our gestures, how we talk, all so is this a socially constructed role or is it uh, the an, an external projection 
of an internal identity because it's one or the other. Unless you're also saying that my soul, in some sense, is a social construct. Of these things that that we as humans can use to kind of categorize someone in terms of of gender, and maybe I don't want to be categorized by you. And often that's all we have as outside observers. So parents just are kind of observing the gender expression. You know, adolescents are not always great about talking about their deep feelings, so we don't always get clear, um, concise answers from them. Oh, but you're there to help them. Thank goodness. Maybe, maybe they're not good at talking about it because it's still developing because their brain's not done yet. Maybe this is the clever Hansel effect and you are cueing and coaching them into this pseudo identity so that you can cut pieces off of them so that you could make money. Although, uh, if we ask, we there, um, identity based on gender expression, it can get very confusing. They are, however, separate constructs. So someone can. So it is a construct. My, my gender identity is a construct. Where, where did I get this construct? Have an internal sense very much of being male. You know, what is it? What, what does it mean to have an internal sense of a construct? What, what, being male is not a construct. So, so what is being, at what point does it become a construct? Are you saying I have an internal sense of a mental idea? Cause that, that's totally unrelated to what gonad class I'm in. No, they say I am male, I'm fully male. That's how I identify, but they might not fit the cultural ideas of masculinity that we have. Um, and to me, that makes sense. All of our gender diverse folks have been on a very different journey than those who who are born and identify as cisgender, right? Who identifies as cisgender? Literally nobody. You just tell us that that's what we identify as is if we're not already in the club. They have, at least at one point, been identified as, you know, a gender that they don't align with. So they have a different experience of gender and of gender expression. It's just gaslighting. It is just lying. They're just lying to the kids. Saying you're different. You're weird and different. You're a totally different category because you feel different. And if you feel alienated, you are alienated. So come on back for drugs, 13-year-olds. And so they're often not bound to the uh, kind of cultural rigidity that we expect, you know, in, in others. And so... Oh, but the rest of us are? I'm, I'm bound to some cultural rigidity because I don't want you to cut my breasts off? Is that how it works? We often see a variety of expressions, and that's okay. And that's that's. It's apparently not okay. It's something you need to treat, or else they'll have horrific mental health consequences. That's what you were just saying a few minutes ago. No coherent theory whatsoever. Completely, um, kind of different and, and usual to explore that as an adolescent. You know how we will see people who are masculine, who are on testosterone, who are painting their nails, or whoa! Oh my god! What are they going to think of next? Thank goodness someone's funding the GEMS program at Boston Children's, or else we, the world might have, might have not known that such things existed. Jesus Christ, I can't, I can't, I need to stop. I need, I, I'm only at 12 minutes. I can't even, like, <laughs> these people make me so unbelievably mad. I, I, I didn't know I was capable of such rage anymore, but, but you know what? I upregulated the rage receptors just for this group. We're returning to Boston Children's Hell. This is part eight. In my response. Armchair psychologist for a second, next to Dr. McGregor. But I, I am maybe an armchair anthropologist, but I just think it's important for us to remember that gender diversity has existed for many, many, many centuries in diverse cultures. And just just centuries? Why why just centuries?
It's not necessarily that this is new. It's, it's not necessarily that this is new. Whoops. Get back there. <laughs> has existed for many, many, many centuries in diverse cultures. And it's not necessarily that this is new. It's that we, as a Western society, are finally realizing that we need to be better at being inclusive of people that have always existed. So, good, good news. Uh, white people plagued with white guilt. Here, here, here's a way out of that guilt where, where you don't actually have to change anything and uh, you, can, you can hurt kids in the process. Uh, no, nothing, nothing economically actually has to change, but you can feel like you have uh, grown as a culture. So you'll notice that white culture starts and ends at the top in, in this person's uh, a transformative religious experience. And I think when we think about it that way, it makes it a lot easier for us to step back and say it's, it's not that trans people necessarily have barriers to success in life or, or that they're going to struggle more than others. It's that we built this system. It's made it harder for them to live. Did you build the system where they went through an unaffirming puberty if you did nothing? When did you build that system, Boston Children's? Was it in the beginning? And breathe. And so all that we're doing here is trying to create a system that's inclusive of everyone. They're trying to play God. Of every gender. Does anyone else have anything that they're just, they feel like they want to bring up? If not, I want to just bring up one question that we got in advance that I think it was a really great question from a young person. And I think it's important that we talk about. So we had this great question. What does it mean to feel like a girl when you present gender typically boy and are not uncomfortable with your body? Just to recap, what if uh, you are a male and you like dressing and acting in ways that your culture would associate with uh, boys, uh, but still want the attention of saying I'm trans? Do you, do you still need to be put on drugs? Dr. McGregor, Dr. Cardwell, I feel like these are you questions. I think it's you know, I think it's hard to say because it's so individual, right? I mean, I think is it how individual? It seems like a pretty one size fits all solution here, where we just we just got to get them on the drugs and stunt the brain development, or else. That, like I was saying, you can present any way that you want, but you can still have such a, a firm assertion of who you are. But you also can feel differently depending on the day. You can go through a journey. You, you can. That's 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 the ticket. If you join the church, the rules are different, and you get a lot more leeway in how you feel and how you talk. And it doesn't have to make sense, but you are freed from the constant harassment of perceived uh, heresy. If, if you're flying the trans flag, it doesn't matter how wrong you are, people will give you a pass. And they, they will praise you no matter what you say and do. It's, it's pretty great. Whereas if you're outside of the club, then you're a cisgender and you don't know anything. And you obviously only identify with how the culture sees people of your sex feel you know like sometimes i'm more girl than other times and that's okay um 
what I, I would still like some more elaboration on what that means. My suggestion is always to get support if you have questions about your own journey or how that's kind of manifesting. Is this normal or you know what? It's it's, it's not normal. That's the idea, right? That's why it's why they come to you. What am I not thinking of that maybe I could do to help myself feel more comfortable? Um, that's and, and that's really the most important question for these people is what can we do right now to uh, experience a delta of change of comfort? It, it is a very, very uh, consumerist, capitalist, me, 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 gimme, 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 right now kind of mindset that appeals to teenagers. It is, it is about placating their temporary, immediate emotional distress at literally any cost. Literally any cost, including your actual grandchildren and uh, your child's uh, uh, experience of their own body. Support can look like uh, kind of there's a lot of um, GSAs or supportive clubs at school. There's supportive adults and sports teams and, and at school and in other activities. Just just pick an adult and bring up how you feel about your sex and your genitals and just, just talk about it. There's certainly therapists if that's something that some <laughs> end of the list one is open to and is able to find a good fit. But we it's really unlikely to find a good fit for a therapist. Ask ask your softball coach. Much more likely to get a good fit there. We really want you to have support on that unique journey and sometimes the reality is we have to sit in a gray area of, well, I don't know. We're going to have to walk this road for a little bit longer before we know what that's like. But it, what? I thought we'd give them drugs at eight. It's very normal to have, you know, to have a lot of questions about what this means for me and whether or not, you know, this is who I am and, and what are the possibilities here. And so I think finding. Do you get the vibe that she keeps talking until you look like you've heard enough and not until she's done talking? support about that is is my biggest recommendation and then just giving it time because it's it's different for every person and you might find that over time your gender expression might shift a little bit or your gender identity might shift a little bit and so so we need to drug eight-year-olds why and that's okay um there's often a journey to find your your true authentic self wonderful and another question um that came that came up in the questions that I feel like is, is also coming up. The idea that you have to find your authentic self, that you don't just grow into it naturally. In the questions today, can someone define pan gender and can someone define gender fluid? I know this came up a little bit at the beginning. Dr. Um, Gerger talked about. You have to be really careful what gender fluid you use for your pan gender because you will have to reseason it afterwards if you screw it up. Um, gender fluid, but we've gotten a bunch more questions about it. So can you just go over it for us? Yeah, I can go over it again. So gender fluid is the idea that literally your gender is fluid. So that can mean that day to day you have a different gender identity. So for instance, we've had patients who've come in and they wear a pronoun button. So today my pronouns are she, her, for instance. A person with aphasia will not be helped uh, by a pronoun button if they also cannot read pronouns. Maybe tomorrow I'm feeling more non- and yes, some people with aphasia specifically cannot read pronouns. It's a thing. They can read other words. They can't read pronouns. Binary or agender, so then I use they, them pronouns. So it's very different depending on the person, but usually it means there's some fluidity and they feel like they're not encompassed by a stable gender. Like it's not that they're always this or always that. It's that they kind of... 
Yeah, it's just expect the unexpected, and I will be watching to see how uh, quickly you modify your response to me, uh, because it's illusion of control theater. I'd move in between it. Very individual to the person, but that would be more of a gender-fluid person. Somebody who identifies as pan-gender generally, I think, is similar to, like, agender or non-binary. So every gender is similar to no gender and unusual gender. Zorwellian. It's truly outside, you know, of the binary, like kind of identifying as all. And one, once again, the concept of agender is being situated somewhere. It's being given a location. How can a lack be a, have a location? All genders are no genders. I mean, it's very specific to the person, which is why I always recommend you ask what that term means to that person. How is it different from personality? But in general, it means that you kind of do not subscribe to just one gender or one gender on the binary, that you kind of truly have um, a, an outside identity. And that's why it's important to ask, because that even more so than in some Related of the other terms we talked about today is very individual to the person. Yes, so many terms with respect to gender and with respect to sexuality have different meanings for if, if it's not clear, the shrug means I know that I'm full of it right now. Different people. We had a great contributor in the question and answer um, whose definitions of bisexual and pansexual were different than the ones that I gave. And I've heard both of those. And I've heard other definitions. And we're all just going to validate each other. It doesn't have to make sense. The point is we're in a church and you are in group and I am in group and we're just going to rejoice in being in group. Which is why it's really important to just talk to people if you're not certain what they need to make certain that you do understand it's not and that's okay you but you can but if you need more information it's okay to ask for it what if i need to get on with my day what if i need to do other things today what if i don't want to spend my day trying to accommodate your delusions what if i just want to be at work or be at school or be somewhere else i'm compelled to be without having to worry about your mental relationship with your genitals I'm not interested. It's okay to ask. And it's a, we, we're constantly learning, right? And we do this day in, day out. So it's okay to have some humility of just knowing, okay, I don't know all these terms. and Have some humility about not knowing whether the eight-year-old is going to change their mind in the future. Have some humility about the reality that children are often confused. And they can grow up and have a totally different perspective. Don't talk about humility when you are robbing children of sexual function based on a fantasy. That's okay. I'm going to ask or do my own research. Um, there's a lot of resources that we'll hand out, but Gender Spectrum is a good example of um, has some good term lists. And, and there's certainly resources as well if you don't feel comfortable asking or if that's not appropriate given the situation. So as we get to the end of the seminar, I'm just going to remind everyone that a link for this recording will become available and will be sent to all seminar participants. And also in the next couple of days, you'll also receive a resource list that will contain a large number of resources that for parents, for youth, um, to learn about medical care, to learn about school support. So all of those resources will be sent out by Boston Children's Hospital and you'll be able to um, access that um, 
probably within the next couple of days. I want to thank you all so much for coming. I'm so sorry we couldn't get to all of your, your questions while we were doing the panel. We will try to answer some of them for those that were not answered anonymous, asked anonymously over the next couple of days. And I just want to um, give all of our panelists a chance to um, say goodbye and any closing thoughts. I guess I'll go first. Um, you know, thank you everyone for being here. You know, this is really such an important step, just having curiosity and wanting to support um, whoever in your lives might be gender diverse. And I think it's so important as a, a mental health provider in this space to, to recognize that this is a really resilient and special population. These are not people that are just going to be, you know, mentally ill for the rest of their lives. Sometimes that narrative continues. And If, if they're not going to be mentally ill for the rest of their lives necessarily, why are we cutting the genitals off of children? Why are we sensing their brain development? Because that's a pretty good way of guaranteeing that they will continue to have mental health symptoms in the future. If you, if you give them a chemically induced brain injury uh, during a critical developmental window with these drugs. And so if we're acknowledging that they might get better in the future uh, uh, with or without treatment, They know that they shouldn't be doing this. They belong in prison. Support for them and allowing them just to blossom and be who they are is really... Um... Yes, allow them to blossom. Do you think that you're allowing them to blossom when you prevent them from blossoming, ma'am? Is that really how your mind works? kind of what we recommend offering and you all are here today learning how to do that. And I think that's so important. And we just thank you for, for being that supportive person in the lives of our um, gender diverse folks. Slimy. She is a salesman. She wants you to really believe that this is the car for you. This car is on fire. You know, I just want to say same thing. Thank you all for being here. I think this is great. Um, I think we all really love working with this population. It's really, really fun, rewarding, um, sometimes really challenging and really worth it. So, uh, and that's really because people who, who care and can make a huge difference. Um, and everything we do is really to try to really improve the lives of these kids. So, you know, there's a lot of anxiety. Some people really feel like there might not, you know, that some medications or whatever, there's a lot of anxiety and, and stress, but really we're, you know, it's our job to really try to take that off of um, the child and uh, caregivers and all those things. And, and we have been doing it a while and we really like it. So thanks for coming. They really like it. Why do they really like it though? Thank you everyone for coming and it was a great webinar and we're happy to be here. And one thing that I wanted to say, Hi, everybody. say is that it is, no matter if you're a young individual who feels confused about your gender identity or if you're a family member who's, um, you know, uh, feeling that he's a little bit overwhelmed with, um, you know, um, dealing with a child who's a bit confused about their gender identity. The key point is to be supportive and accepting and to try to, um, you know, talk with your child or your teenager. And we're here to support you at any point and, you know, uh, coming to- Ryan James is only 17. 
when all of it started. And uh, now Ryan lives with a colostomy bag. Uh, and it's only a decade later. So that's, that's where the support leads. To see our team, especially uh, Carrie and Jeremy, because they are the first stops, doesn't mean that your child necessarily is going to transition fully, but to get the full support. No, that, that, they wait to the third or fourth appointment for that, at least, I'm sure. Support is definitely important for you guys. Well, we're going to round it off with malicious advice, Mallard. And I will just echo all the thank yous for showing up for your kids, for your peers, for your family members, for the community. They, they want to invert your family's members. You know, it, allyship is so important at every single level, and it is an active verb, and you being here. Who are we fighting against, Mallard? And learning and taking this back and making change in your own communities is just another step forward towards making this world a far better place for everyone. Don't follow the duck just because you impressed upon it when you were a duckling. She's, she's bad news. One regardless of gender. Thank you all for coming, and we hope to see some of you at future webinars. The ones we don't want to see, you know who you are. Uh, thank you so much for watching, and that is the end of this webinar. Uh, I am uh, now going to be able to leave Boston Children's Health.